Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. You got to wonder what that unclean spirit heard in that particular moment. Demon possession isn't something that we encounter a lot in our day-to-day -day lives, I don't think. And so it's a really hard thing when we hit it here in the gospel. It's one of those weird trip points where we look at it and go, well, that that's not something we know. That's not something we deal with. And it it stops us in our tracks and we have to wrap our heads around what exactly is being talked about here anyway. What did it look like in that moment? All of them sitting, we can imagine a synagogue, I'm guessing. Probably imagine it to look a little bit like our church, admittedly. But maybe not the worst of disasters. And we can imagine what it sits like, feels like to sit and listen to a sermon, can't we? <clears throat> That was when I wish I could hear you. But this moment, what did it look like? Who was this guy sitting in the synagogue at Capernaum listening to Jesus? Did the people around him know that he had an unclean spirit? Did they suspect anything when he walked into the building? Was it his first time? Did he come just to heckle the new preacher, the itinerant guy who had come in from out of town? Was he some sort of first century Statler or Waldorf in there just, you know, throwing the equivalent of first century tomatoes? Did he come to seek healing, aware of the demon within? Or was he just a guy? Did he walk into that synagogue because that was the day you go to synagogue? That's just how things are and the way that the world works. What does it mean anyway to have an unclean spirit? What does it look like to have a demon? I have listened to sermons out the wazoo, as I'm sure that all of you have, that explain away texts like this by saying that demon possession is just what we would now call epilepsy or schizophrenia or some other form of neurological or psychological illness, which is somehow rendered immoral and unclean and grounds for exclusion in the past, as though we were super great about including all of those people. I mean, let's be really honest here but also as though compassion for the suffering were somehow a recent development, a modern human thing, along with better diagnostics. But I think so much of the way that we approach the very question of demon possession, when we hit texts like this in the gospel, we do this exercise in which we are suddenly super aware of the time that has elapsed between then and now. And demon possession is a then, not a now. It's an archaic, quaint notion from before humans were smart. 
It's not us. And it doesn't really happen here. And all of that makes me really, really uncomfortable on a whole lot of levels. First off, because I love Jesus. He's a great guy. I'm really quite fond of him, and I believe in Jesus, which is a really, really good thing when you do what I do. And in the gospel, and in the authority that Jesus brought to his teachings, possibly at least in part because of the whole Messiah thing, but I think also because he really lived it and walked it and felt it and expressed it, but in all of the experiences of Jesus that I have had with you and in other church settings, I have literally never seen someone with epilepsy or schizophrenia or any other illness that we would write off as demon possession be cured by an exorcism. I'm not sure that's the way it works. Although I have seen a whole lot of harm done to people with those illnesses by Christians who tell them that their illness is a mark of evil or uncleanliness or demons or immorality in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. So I think even as we walk into this story, we're already kind of on shaky ground in the way that this has translated into our lives. But more than that, all of those interpretations... All of those things that push the whole question into the past or into some other realm than the familiarity of what we do on a weekly basis, none of that's in the story. Not today. Not here. This isn't the garrison demoniac who routinely engaged in self-harm and had been ostracized from his community. This is simply a man with an unclean spirit. And he doesn't fit into the category of a pitiable them who isn't us, who isn't regularly a member of our gatherings. This guy isn't the stereotypical image of a demon-possessed, mentally ill guy who walks in muttering to himself and making everyone uncomfortable. This isn't the sort of person that we try to convince ourselves that we could never, ever be. Maybe that's really the sticking point that I hit when I try to preach a story like this. So the reason I spend so much time even trying to get us into thinking about what the story might mean is that I have to spend so much time telling us, reminding us, what the story doesn't mean <laughs> at the moment. Because the way that I have heard over and over again, the way that modern Christians, modern progressive Christians, approach a story like this one, a story of demon possession, a story of uncleanliness, which comes with a compassion that is very slightly condescending. Because our understanding of demons and spirits keep this person and this healing at a safe and comfortable distance from anything that happens to any of us in our normal lives. It becomes a nice story. A comforting story. Jesus loves even people like that. Enough to heal them and turn them into people like us. Yay, Jesus! Ew. Truth of the matter? The story that Amy read for us? It doesn't say that. It doesn't. Nowhere in there does it say anything that sounded like that. 
the man who comes into the synagogue, the man with the unclean spirit. That's just your average Jewish resident of Capernaum going to the synagogue like he does every single week, sitting among his neighbors, hanging out with his friends, maybe having the first century equivalent of coffee afterwards, doing his usual routine. The man with the unclean spirit is any one of us coming into a gathering to learn about the scriptures and encountering something in that moment that tears us completely apart. Uh-oh. Theologian and scholar Mary Ludy talks about this particular passage talks about the importance of recognizing that here, in this first chapter of Mark, the demon has all of the agency. The human host is just the victim. And she's right. We see it in the text. But it's more complicated than that. It's far more complicated than that. Because then we have to ask, what exactly agency even is in a story like this? Who has agency in this story? Was the demon in charge when the guy walked in to the synagogue? Was the demon somehow trying to come to church? Was the demon in charge when he greeted his neighbor and asked after his kids? Did demons hang out with their friends and engage in daily banter? You gotta wonder. Where do the lines shift and how do we live in this sort of a way? What does it mean? What does it look like? What comes back to that? What has agency within us? What has agency within me? Put myself on the line for this one. What has agency when my sense of self is strong and feminist? I know that's a shock to all of you. I'll give you a second with it. My sense of self is strong and feminist. Hmm. But my limbic system goes on high alert when I'm in a meeting trying to get a word in edgewise. And I hear everyone around the table praise and credit the baritone voice that repeated what I just said. And my socialization forces me to choose between keeping quiet and playing it safe or risking being labeled as shrill and angry or worse, being diminished as selfish for claiming my own idea. What has agency when my sense of self is anti-racist? Again, a huge shock to all of you, I'm sure. But I still catch myself policing the speech patterns and assuming nefarious intent of black folk. When my intent is really good, my brain, this frontal cortex is fine, but my instincts way back at the back of my brain cry out with the harmful messages that have surrounded me my entire life. What has agency when my sense of self is called into question? When the ways that I make sense of the world stop making sense and my anxiety kicks into high gear, lashing out because it feels like, and I know that we've all been there, venting anger will justify me in my anxious feelings. But it doesn't really work and it just sends me into a deeper anxiety spiral over which I wind up having less and less and less control, less and less and less agency. Who is in charge? Myself or my prejudices? Myself or my socialization? Myself or my anxiety? Myself or my demons? 
when we do engage in harmful behavior, intentional or not, did the devil make us do it? Are we puppeteered by our demons and our angels? Are we in control of the racism and sexism and classism that our culture tells us is completely normal, even correct, such that we don't even notice the sin that lives within us, whispering words into our mouths, shifting the way we see and hear and judge, and twisting experience to suit its own purposes, possessing us in ways that we can't even recognize because it is so familiar and so justified and so comfortable. Right up until the day that we walk into a synagogue, or we walk into a church, or we hook our computers up to Zoom, and this teacher is talking about loving our neighbor in ways that the demons really don't approve. Maybe we start suspecting that there are demons within us. Maybe we start hearing this tug of war between what is being said this love, this grace, this compassion, this mercy, this infinite amount of God. And all of the parts of ourselves that are keeping us from actually following any of it. They're keeping us from loving like God wants us to love, from loving like God has loved us. The parts of ourselves that really don't want to have to give grace, let alone receive it. And as we listen to the scriptures and the lessons and the interpretation that discomfort grows and wriggles within us because it feels like each word is pointing directly at the demon that we didn't even know was there and we didn't want to have to deal with, that demon that we've been socialized to accept, the demon that is fearful of change, the demon that might just unleash hordes of other demons if we actually acknowledge its presence, its existence. And then that demon jumps up. That demon who is longing like any one of us for self-preservation and doesn't really want to go anywhere. That demon jumps up in that moment to confront the gospel that is breaking us open. It's our voice, but who is speaking? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? It's a rhetorical question, of course. Is Jesus' message pretty much all about going in and weeding out all of the things that keep us separate and all of the things that keep us isolated and all of the things that make us fearful and suspicious and all of the things that keep us from the love that would actually bring about the kingdom of God and all of the things that really could just feel like demons way down deep inside us. Yes, Jesus has, in fact, very much come to destroy all of that. But in that moment, all of the demon in us, all that seems to have agency over us, all of that bubbles up and jumps up and cries out in tremendous pain and is ripped away. And there is healing. I wonder if it felt like healing to the man who was sitting there 
standing there yelling in the middle of a Torah portion. Healing is good, right? We can take comfort. Jesus heals, yay! But healing also hurts a lot. I don't have to tell any of you that. It's in the text. The man has convulsions. As that which had been within the man, which had been part of the man, is pulled out of him and cast away. Healing hurts even just in the very public nature of the whole interaction, the vulnerability of having all of your neighbors see the parts of you that are unclean. Whoops. Didn't mean for that to happen. All of your neighbors, all of your friends, all of the people you were just having coffee with, they see the demon. And they see your inability to control it. And they see you suddenly as being in need of healing. Possibly in ways that suggest you're not alone in that, but just as possibly our remaining demons whisper in our ears in ways that make you an outsider and a danger to the demons who remain. Healing hurts because it serves as a reminder of our humanity, of our fragility, of our vulnerability. Healing hurts sometimes because it shows us where we do have agency and where we do not. Because it reminds us, as we heal, of our need for one another in our navigation of a world that seems frightening in its very newness. But in that very discomfort, in that public acknowledgement of our sin and all that keeps us apart from one another, within that moment is the living of the health that has been restored, no matter how uncomfortably it comes about. Because what began with the prophetic words of Jesus continues in supportive community that holds a convulsive vulnerability and helps us to stand up again in our sense of self when the demons might speak in the voices of anxiety and prejudice. The word of God in all its love and grace shakes loose the unclean spirits and it doesn't feel good when it happens. But it is the lived experience of that very word that makes whole again our ripped open selves. A very grace that breaks us open, that tears away the layers of justification and defensiveness and dismissiveness and reveals us for the beloved imperfect people we are. The very grace that wakes our demons and heralds their destruction binds us up as we learn who it is that we still could be. As we learn who God sees in looking at us, full of grace and mercy. I would love for this to be an easy and comfortable story. Jesus heals, yay! But healing isn't necessarily a comfortable process, and I can't make this into a nice, neat, happy story. But the good news is that I don't have to. There's nothing the matter with us if we struggle as the healing approaches. There's nothing the matter with us if it hurts to heal. 
The good news is that when we stop holding at arm's distance the quaint notions of biblical stories of demon possession, when we stop thinking about the ones in need of healing as a distant them, and embrace within ourselves a scripture that we cannot set aside, when we take what agency we do have, even if the demons within us flail about in anxiety, We find deep within the little beginning sprouts of the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is there in that synagogue at Capernaum. As that demon gets pulled, the crack that remains cracks open on the kingdom. The kingdom of God is there. As we crack ourselves open, as we face the pain of healing, the kingdom of God is there, waiting for us, waiting for the demons who have long resisted its call to grace and love to show themselves for who they are in the mirror that the word of God holds up to us. The kingdom of God is there in the hands of the others in the synagogue, in the church, in our daily lives who keep us safe in our convulsions, who remind us to just lie still for a moment afterwards. You're going to be okay. Who bring us a glass of water, who offer us a hand up, and who remind us, even in our embarrassed vulnerability, that we are loved, that we are part of something bigger. That the healing we have to do is not ours to do alone. The kingdom of God is there in the love and the grace that supports us in our healing from the demons that still exist within us all. Thanks be to God. Amen.